prayer. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege, and it is a privilege, to come together as a group of Christians and study your word because we know that it has something to say to us. We know that your Holy Spirit wrote down the words through the pens of men, and your Holy Spirit wants to speak to us tonight and teach us through those words. And so we pray that you would give us open ears and open hearts to listen closely for your voice. I pray that you would just quiet our souls right now, quiet the distractions, help us to listen attentively, to not be pulled away from the focus that we have right now. And we ask that you would be honored as we turn to your word and that you would be exalted and glorified. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So, we are going to start the book of Revelation tonight. I really don't know exactly how far we're going to get tonight, but we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. And the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So right in the opening paragraph of this book, we understand a couple important things. The first is, and this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's important because you will, you will hear it very often. If people start talking about this book, they'll say, you know, the book of Revelations says, or you know, I was think, thinking about the book of Revelations, and they make it plural. And that change, it's a, it's a quiet little addition, but it changes the entire focus of the book because if it's a book about revelations, then all of a sudden we, you know, oh, who's the Antichrist and what does 666 mean and what about the, the bulls and the trumpets and the, you know, all the different things and the, and the seals and, you know, the number seven and who's the, and the dragon. And, and you can, you know, like we talked about on Sunday, those things are great, but that's not the point of the book. The book is a singular focus, and that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is about the fact that Jesus Christ wants to reveal himself to the world, and he's going to do it. And so if you understand that, all of a sudden this book becomes much simpler. And it's important to understand because people approach Revelation like it's this, you know, like there's 65 books of the Bible, and we're supposed to read them and teach them, and then there's this one at the end, and God only knows what it means. But he said, hey, this is, we know exactly what it means. You can open the book of Revelation to any passage and read it and understand this is about Jesus Christ glorifying himself. And so if you understand that at the beginning, as we are reading this book and as we are studying it, then you're going to have a much better grasp about what's going on. And you also have a much calmer grasp about what's going on. Because there's a lot less reason to panic when you read this book or a lot less reason to go into apocalyptic mode or, or into uh, you know, prepper mode when you realize, oh, it's just about Jesus Christ glorifying himself. Okay. That sounds kind of, you know, straightforward. This book has one point to it. And most of us can count to one. So, like, we can do this, right? This book has, has one goal and one purpose. But we're also told that it's written, it was, it's a vision that's given to John the Apostle. And John is writing it down for us. But notice also in verse 3, there's a blessing associated with this verse. He says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it. So if you read this book, and if you pay attention to it, God will bless your life. Isn't that interesting? If you, just understand that. If you read this book, God will bless you. And, you know, you could, you could try and unpack, like, how specifically. There might be multiple blessings. But understand, if Jesus Christ is revealed to you, that's a blessing. If you read this book and you realize, wow, Jesus is really real, and he's really coming back, and that changes your life, you've been blessed. And so there's a blessing promised with this book. In verse 4, we get now, if you will, what would be sort of the standard introduction of a letter. He says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, and grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. When he's, so a very standard, you know, grace and peace. But you know, the grace of God and the peace of God that follows that. He says he's sending greetings from God the Father, from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. When he says the seven spirits, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Um, you don't have to flip there if you don't want to, but in Isaiah 11, 
there's a prophecy about the coming of Jesus. And in 11, chapter 11, verse 2 of Isaiah, it says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so it's this idea that basically the, the Holy Spirit has sort of seven characteristics that are the complete summary of who he is. And so if you will, he's saying basically, God the Father, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ be with you. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood? Jesus Christ. That was kind of lame in group participation, but it's okay. So, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Okay? Again, this book has a focus, and that is that Jesus Christ deserves the dominion and the glory forever and ever. Verse 7, John says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So, all the glory belongs to Jesus Christ, and John says, and he's coming. The emphasis of this book is Jesus is real, he's revealing himself, and he's coming. That's, that's the point, over and over again. This book is not about anything else. This book is about Jesus Christ is real, Jesus Christ is coming. What are you going to do with that information? Verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So he says, hey, I'm just, you know, I'm not writing this from an elevated status. I'm just, I'm a brother and a companion. I was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John says, I was in the, on the island called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is very late in John's life. At this point, John is the last surviving apostle. And if not the last, almost the last surviving eyewitness of Jesus Christ's ministry on earth. And he said, I was on the island of Patmos. John was on the island of Patmos because he was banished there. And I've never been, but you can actually visit the island of Patmos today. And you can see it. And it's, from what I've heard, it's kind of where you would banish somebody. There's not much there. There's a cave that they think is probably where John was living when he got the vision. But it's an interesting thought that, you know, John, in essence, was a man who wouldn't die. And all the other disciples were martyred, and, and the Lord was keeping John alive for something specific. And I believe it was really the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John that he wrote towards the end of his life. But John wouldn't die, and he watched all his friends die, you know, one at a time. And, and they went off on different ministries and never came back. John, it's not that John didn't die because he was playing it safe. John is dipped in boiling oil, church history tells us, and it doesn't kill him. And so it's not that John just had it easy. In a sense, it's actually that Instead of getting like the one thing that killed him, he had the however many things that should have killed him and didn't. And at this point in his life, in his ministry, the thought is from the opposition, oh, we can't kill John. So we just need to marginalize John. And so we will just put him on this island. Ha <laughs> ha, he can't get the word of God spread out from the island. You know, we will successfully stop the word of God from spreading. And John says, you know, I was praying and I got this vision. And Jesus Christ said, hey, I want you to write something down about the fact that I'm going to reveal myself. Because the plans of men to stop the spread of the word of God never work. It might feel like they work. And that's why you should never trust your feelings, because your feelings lie to you. It might feel like, oh, wow, they really, you know, if John's sitting here, he might think, wow, I can't witness to anybody. I can't pastor a church. I can't serve in any kind of capacity. I am by myself on this island. Like, well, I guess that's what you call the close of a chapter. I guess I'm done being a minister for the Lord. I'm done being an apostle. Jesus says, no, you're not. I'm not done. Whether you think you're done is irrelevant. I'm not done. I have something I want you to write down. And I expect you to write it down. And so you're going to write it down. And you're going to send it to these seven churches. So John hears the voice of the Lord. And then verse 12, he turns around. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, 
and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and at his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now just stop right there for a second. Do you know who this is? This is Jesus, okay? And it'll, if you're not sure, it clarifies pretty quickly. But understand, John sees Jesus. He has a vision of Jesus Christ. But understand also, you know, remember, John saw Jesus in his earthly ministry. John saw Jesus as a man. John saw Jesus as someone who was, uh, was fully God, but experienced the struggles of being human. Someone who was at times lonely, someone who was hungry, someone who was tired, someone who suffered pain, someone who actually died. John saw all those things. And now he turns around and he says, you know, his head is white like wool, his eyes are like flames of fire. I've never seen that on somebody. I don't know exactly what that looks like. His feet were like fine brass. I've never seen, as if refined in a furnace, I've never seen somebody's feet and thought they looked like molten metal. His voice was like the sound of many waters. I've heard people with loud voices before. I've never heard anybody as loud or as powerful as the ocean. And it, in his right hand, he's holding seven stars. Do you know how big a star is? It's big. You're not holding it in your hand. This is what John is seeing is not little Jesus meek and mild, right? I love how Gail Irwin says, he says, we have this image of Jesus in our minds. It's really not biblical. You know, we picture him as this red-haired white guy who walks around holding sheep and looking sad all the time. And that's not really uh, what Jesus was. <laughs> Jesus was fully man, but he was fully God. And, but what John sees here, remember that when he, when he came to earth as a man, he reduced or bottled up his glory, really for our sakes, because he would have, uh, it would have killed us to have looked at that much holiness. He, he condensed it, and now John has a vision where it's been uncondensed. It's been uncorked. So this is very much the same Jesus that John has known his whole life, but this is very much a different Jesus at the same time. Right? The suffering servant who died for our sins is not suffering anymore. He's been glorified. And he, in his glorified state, is one who tells John, I want you to write a book about the fact that I'm coming. And this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't the revelation of Jesus Christ as this nice guy who makes us feel good. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ as the glorified Son of God who is perfect and complete in his holiness and he dwells with all power and authority and glory. And it's important that we keep that in mind that we don't lose sight of that because we always have to be careful. You know, sometimes Jesus makes us uncomfortable. And what we often do, or what we often try to do, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, is we say, okay, if Jesus makes me uncomfortable, then I'm going to reduce Jesus just a little bit. And I'll just have, a, you know, I'll make him a little less God and a little more man. And I'll just make him a little more palatable, and he probably wouldn't actually... You know, maybe he didn't mean that when he said it. Maybe he doesn't really feel that way about sin. Maybe, you know, we just kind of like, maybe we'll just tone it down a little bit. But if you have a disconnect between what you understand about Jesus and what Jesus reveals about himself, your perspective needs to change. And so when Jesus says, when John turns around and sees Jesus, John doesn't say, um, that's not really a nice image. That makes me feel uncomfortable. No, what does John do? He fell at his feet as dead. John collapses. John, John doesn't say, you know what, this is making me nervous, or you know what, even this is cool, can I like take a picture? John just collapses because he's in the presence of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but, as it continues in verse 17, he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So, this is important because it, it's important for the context of the purpose of the book. This book is about the revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. And John has a vision of Jesus Christ in all his glory and falls down like he's dead. And Jesus says, what? Don't be afraid. The book of Revelation, if you read it, 
kind of feels scary. You might be afraid reading the book of Revelation. You might look at who Jesus reveals himself to be and say, wow, this makes me really uncomfortable. And Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. It's okay to realize that Jesus in his glory is intense. It's okay to realize that you in your sinfulness are not capable of being in the presence of the holiness of Jesus Christ. But you don't have to be afraid of that because Jesus has offered the invitation for all of us to come into his presence. It's not what we do, it's what we receive. It's the fact that he has done it. So John has this amazing vision, and Jesus says, hey, don't be afraid. You're going to see some crazy stuff. I don't want you to be afraid, because this is about one thing, and this is about me revealing myself. And now, specifically, what he's going to do is, he says, he gives him an outline for the book. He says, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. And the things which are, and that's where we're going to be at in chapters two and three, and then the things which will take place after this. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, after these things. Same idea. So John writes, things that he just saw. Okay, got it. Revelation chapter 1. Things which are. And this is what uh, he's going to write now. Seven letters to seven churches. These are literal churches. But they also uh, apply in a very broad sense to every Christian. Because they could be, and I'm not, and I'm not saying this, you want to be careful how you phrase this, in the application it's important to understand that he's writing seven historical letters to seven historical churches. But we've been allowed to read the letters. They're not private letters. And so God encourages us to read them. He said, blessed are you if you read the words in this book. So as we read the letters that God wrote to churches, we realize, oh, God wants to say things to us through these letters to the churches. And so it's okay to look at these and say, huh, maybe this is a reflection. This is a letter to a church, but maybe it's also a letter to my heart. And maybe the Lord wants to say something to my heart as he's speaking to these churches. And so, some, you know, you could say these churches may reflect or could reflect, in a sense, sort of seven attributes of the Christian heart. In different ways you could be walking with the Lord, different ways you could need to be corrected or encouraged or rebuked or built up. But he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll be, we're going to try, we'll see what happens. There's seven letters. We're going to try and go through them all, because I know some pastors do like one letter per teaching, and it's seven teachings, and you get through the whole thing in seven weeks, and I, truth be told, would have a hard time talking that long about, you know, eight verses. It's just, I don't usually read that slow. I, I read faster than that. And so, and I talk faster than that, too. So, what we're going to do is we're going to try to get through all seven churches at once. But as we go into these, we, you're going to see patterns, and it's good to look at these. Basically, he's going to start out every time and say, hey, you know, to the angel of the church at Ephesus, right. The word angel there, or for what it's worth, is the word that would translate messenger. So he could be writing specifically to an angel who has uh, the responsibility spiritually of helping oversee the church. But if he's writing to the messenger of the church, he could also be writing to the pastor of the church. could be either way. The Greek isn't super specific there. So he could just be saying, hey, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, or the pastor of the church in Smyrna, write this, okay? And then he's going to identify himself as the author. This is, you know, we've talked about this whenever we get through the epistles. Uh, you know, hey, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter, to the churches, James, the half-brother of, you know, James, the, the servant of Christ, John, the servant of Christ, Jude, you know, they identify themselves. Jesus identifies himself, but he uses a slightly different identifier each time. Because depending on the condition of the church or the condition of our hearts, sometimes we need to be reminded of certain attributes of who God is. And then he's going to offer commendation to the church, say, hey, you're doing this great, whenever he can. There's a couple where he doesn't have anything nice to say. And then he's going to offer correction to the church, as needed. Say, hey, this is what you need to do. Where applicable. There's a couple churches that don't need any correction. And then he's going to offer a promise. He say, hey, to him who overcomes, every church there's an opportunity to overcome whatever the church is in. And so whatever, as we're looking at it and applying it to our own hearts, whatever spiritual condition your heart is in, there's an opportunity to overcome. And then with that, a promise where he says, hey, if you overcome, I'm going to do this. If you overcome, this is what I'm going to do for you. Not this is what you'll deserve or this is what you'll earn. This is what I'm going to do. So, chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. 
I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and I found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. So the church at Ephesus is doing pretty solid. I mean, just, just read the list there. Right? God said, hey, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You can't bear evil people. You're testing for doctrine. You have persevered. You have patience. You've labored for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. That's, you know, if somebody walked up to me, particularly if Jesus Christ walked up to me and said, hey, this is what you're doing, I'd be inclined to feel like, yeah, okay. Like, you know, that, that's, it may not be 10 out of 10, but that's pretty close, you know. But he goes on, and he says, Nevertheless, verse 4, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So he says, hey, you're doing all these great things, but I have a problem. And that is that you have left your first love. You're doing all kinds of great works for Jesus Christ. You're doing all kinds of great effort and great initiative. You're being faithful. You are certainly on your way to heaven. But you've forgotten what it's about. You've forgotten what really matters. You have failed to keep the main thing the main thing. This church is doing all kinds of great things. And God says, yeah, but that's, that's honestly, it's worthless. Because if good works or good efforts become a substitute for fellowship with Jesus Christ, they are a waste. And he says, and Lord, honestly, is not interested in how perfect your doctrine is. He doesn't care if you know exactly what's wrong with Calvinism or what's wrong with you know, Catholicism, or what's wrong with Reformed theology, or what's wrong with Charismatic theology, or what's wrong with Calvary Chapel theology. He doesn't care. There's something wrong with every single one of those theologies, by the way. He doesn't care if you really have them all nailed down perfectly. He cares about what? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? In fact, he cares so much that he wrote a book about the revelation of Jesus Christ, because he wants us to know who Jesus is. And actually, he warns the church, he says, repent or else. Some people think, oh, my Jesus wouldn't say that. Well, your Jesus, if he wouldn't say repent or else, is not Jesus. He says, remember from where you've fallen. Go back. Remember. And, and as we're looking at this and you're considering the state of your own heart, if this is you, remember where you fell from. Remember a period of your life when you probably did not have your theology perfectly lined up, but you knew one thing, and that was that Jesus Christ loved you, he saved you from your sins, and that was awesome. And you just loved being with Jesus. If that's where you have left, get back to it. Repent. If you have substituted a relation with Jesus for busy work for Jesus, you need to repent. Or else, he says, I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. And the lampstand, the end of chapter 1, he says, that's the church. He says, if you don't do this, your church will be removed. God says, I will actually close up your church. Guess what? Historically, church of Ephesus didn't last. Church of Ephesus had, was started by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote one of the most profound books of the entire scripture to the church. Church history tells us that John, who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote the book of Revelation, went to the church of Ephesus and was their pastor. And that Mary, the mother of Jesus, went there with him. That'd be pretty like, stellar leadership, right? Like if the mother of Christ is heading up your women's ministry, and the disciple whom Jesus loved is your pastor, that'd be pretty good leadership. This church had everything they needed. They had all the best teaching, all the best programs, all the best initiatives. They did not have one thing, and that was an active love for Jesus Christ. They were not in love in an active love with Christ. And God says, everything else, no, it's worthless. If you do works as a substitute for knowing God, it's nothing. But to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. There's an opportunity to overcome. Repent and overcome. Verse 8. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. He's identifying himself as one who came to life because this church needs specific encouragement in that way. Verse 9. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. 
And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and you will be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This church is going through very intense persecution. And he says, hey, you know what? I know your works. That's good. I know your tribulation. We say, eh, it's not so much fun. I know your poverty. Parentheses, but you are rich. The church looks at their status and says, okay, we're trying to do works for Jesus Christ. We're going through a lot of tribulation, and we don't have any resources. Jesus says, no, you guys are loaded. You guys have so much, you have so much spiritual money stacked away, it's sick. Okay, it was sick is a good term, if that's generational gap. It's dope, is another way of saying it, uh, which is also a generational term. I could get really stuck here really fast, but it's okay. Groovy, and we can go back to the 60s. He says, you have tons of spiritual wealth, and yes, your life is really hard, so here's what you need to remember. Interestingly, he doesn't say, hey, guess what? I'm going to make your life easy for you because you have enough faith. He says, guess what? Don't be afraid. Guess what? Be faithful unto death. Wouldn't you kind of hope that God would give you a better exhortation than that? Like, if, if you're at risk of being killed for your faith, wouldn't you think God would, wouldn't you want God to say something along the lines of like, guess what, I'll make it better? Instead of like, hey, just hang in there until they kill you. Like, that's not, you know, that's not a great rally cry, if you will. But Jesus says, hey, you know what, guys, be faithful and don't be afraid. And to him who overcomes, he will not be hurt by the second death. Understand, the death we experience here on earth is, is not real death. It's a shadow. It's a form of what actually comes. Okay, And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will never actually know what real death is. Because real death is separation from Christ. And that is more valuable and more significant than any thing you could ever experience on earth. So he says, be faithful. Interestingly, this is one of only two churches that receives no correction from the Lord. It's also the church that's going through the hardest time. Tribulation, hard times in our lives, have a way of just focusing. Focusing our needs, our drives, our desires. Okay, this church does not have time to get into doctrinal tangents. This church needs to know, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Okay, good. Are you ready to die for that? Okay, good. Really don't need to cover anything else right now. We're just going to kind of stick with that. And tribulation does that. This church is focused on what they believe because they have to be. And sometimes we worry about what happens if we're persecuted for Christ. You know what happens? I, it won't be fun. I don't hope that the country we live in turns against Christianity. But if it does, you know what we can say to each other? Hey, don't be afraid. The Lord is, is doing something. The Lord is working. So verse 12, we switch gears to another church. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So they're doing pretty good. They're holding on. Life is hard for these guys too, but they're holding on. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So he says, hold on. So, hold on. He says, hey, you're doing good. You're holding on, but I've got a problem. And that is that you have people there who are holding to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Balaam, we actually talked about it last week in the book of Jude. Balaam twisted the word of God for his own end. And in doing so, created a, a pattern, basically, where he said, you can create sexual morality and turn that into idolatry, and you can make God deal with people in that way. You can actually corrupt people's relationship with God through sexual morality. That was Balaam's main plan. And there are people within the church today who twist the word of God to excuse sexual immorality 
And what they're doing is actually bringing the judgment of God upon the very people they claim to love. And he says, hey, you know what? You have those people in your church. You need to deal with it. And as we're looking and applying this to our own lives, do you have that in your own heart? Do you have a willingness in your heart to say, you know what? The Word of God does not apply as it regards to my sexual purity. The Word of God, you know what? My temptation is specific. My struggle is different. This is a private deal. I'm not hurting anyone else. Are you twisting the Word of God to excuse sexual immorality in your life? And if you are, well, just repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Do you realize what he just said there? Jesus said, I will fight against the church if I need to. Jesus takes purity of the church very seriously. There's a reason Paul told Timothy, I think it was Timothy, flee youthful lust. He didn't say walk away from it. He didn't say, you know, be careful. He said flee, run. He tells the church, if you don't deal with this, I will fight against you myself. God takes sexual purity very seriously. And the Nicolaitans, he says they also have, and he says, that's a doctrine that I hate. Some people say the Nicolaitans are uh, kind of just a blanket term for a heresy that might have been springing up, basically the same thing of excusing sexual immorality. Some people say, you know, the name Nicolaitan, if you take it in Greek, it actually kind of means conquer the people. And so some people point to this and say, maybe what God is describing here is actually the sort of emergence of a hierarchy of, you know what, the pastors in the church will tell you how to run your life. And you don't go to God, you go to the pastor first. And really, whichever it is, they're both true. God hates them both. God hates it when people excuse sexual morality. God hates it when people step between the relationship that he wants to have with someone else. Verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So this church has an opportunity still to overcome. They have an opportunity still to repent, but he says, take your opportunity now. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Hey, you're doing more works now than you were back in the day. Like, again, this feels pretty good. You're waiting for the, uh, yeah, and, and, verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, whether that's her name or just the Lord's name for her, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So similarly, this church has a lady in the church who is actually encouraging sexual immorality. And the Lord says, the church is allowing this. I'm going to deal with this woman. I gave her time. It's interesting. We're going to see over and over again through this book. The Lord is gracious in his timing, but he is very serious about his word. He says, I gave her time to repent. She, she is not going to be unaware of the fact that she's in sin. This isn't an issue if she doesn't have enough intel this is an issue of she's in sin and she refuses to repent. I will deal with it. I will make her sick. I will cast a sickness upon her and I will deal with anybody who's in adultery with her. Verse 24, it says, Now to you I say, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say. So to the rest of the church who's not walking in this, he says, I'll put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. So in essence, this church is, is doing okay, except for the fact that they're allowing sexual morality. And the Lord says, hey, deal with that. But outside of that, stay faithful. Verse 26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I have also received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's an idea here. He says, would you rather, if you, in essence, would you rather 
be a slave to your sexual immorality right now? Or would you rather repent, deal with it, and reign with me as over kingdoms of the earth? Sin warps our view to completely forget reality because it, it brings us into a time warp where all we can see is the present. And all we can see is, here's what I want right now. And God says, you know what? Get out of that. I have something infinitely better for you. Do not get stuck in sin. Deal with your sin. Don't, don't park in your sin. Chapter 3, he says, To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Ouch. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this church has a name that they're alive. If you ask anybody in the city of Sardis, hey, how's the church doing? Oh, it's doing great. Yeah, we got new people. We got ministries springing up. We're, well, I mean, there's good stuff happening. Oh, man, you know, Jesus really showed up at worship today. Um, all kinds of, you know, there's, oh, man, it's, the church is alive. Man, you should see the youth group. It's, it's just amazing. And God says, you know what you are? You're dead. There's no life in that church. Which means it's possible for us to think we're alive spiritually and be dead spiritually. It means we are capable of deceiving ourselves. We are capable of telling ourselves one thing and actually be living out the complete opposite. So how do we know whether we're alive or dead? Well, you ask the Lord. He said, remember what you received and heard. Okay, go back. What is the gospel? Jesus Christ came to earth, lived as a man, died and rose again to forgive your sins. Have you asked him to forgive your sins? Okay. Have you asked him to fill you and to make you a new creation? Okay. Then he's made you alive. So now go back and ask yourself, what does an alive person do spiritually? Do it. He says, hey, I wrote you a book where I tell you how to know me. Read it. Hey, I told you to meet with the people of God so that you can learn about me. Do it. Right? Alive, live like you're alive, not like you're covering up for death. But if you're dead spiritually, he says, hold fast and repent. Go back to the fundamentals. Remember what you've heard, hold fast, repent. Go back to Jesus Christ and repent of your sins. And again, there's still in this church, there's a promise that for him who overcomes, there's an opportunity. If you're dead spiritually, you know what you can do? You can overcome that. Jesus will give you what you need to overcome. In verse 7, it says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Right there, you got to realize, any church can have that. Any individual can have that. Okay? Where Jesus says, you know what? I know what you're up to, and it's good. I've set before you an open door. There's, there's an opportunity that I am putting in front of you. And guess what? No one's going to be able to stop it. Because why? You have a little strength. Not much, actually. You're actually pretty pathetic, but you've kept my word and have not denied my name. If you hold fast to the word of God and hold fast to Jesus Christ, you can do anything that God calls you to. And any church and any individual can experience that in their own heart. He says, indeed, verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. 
Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. So he says, hey, you know what? You kept my command to persevere. You're hanging on. I will deliver you. Whatever you go through, I will be in control. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This church is just doing what it does. It's just focused on Jesus Christ and letting things happen as a result of that. And God has nothing corrective to say to this church. He says, hey, you know what? Keep it up. Keep going. Do what you're doing. Hang on to what you've got. Don't be afraid about what's coming. Trust in me. Verse 14, last one. He says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your kindness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Now, remember, the church in Smyrna, he said, hey, I know that you guys think you're poor, but you're actually rich. Church in Laodicea, he says, you know, you think you're rich, but you've got to understand something. You're pathetically poor. And he says, you're, you're not cold or hot. You're not for me, but you're not against me. You just kind of, you know, you're good with Jesus. We're, you know, we're positive. You know, we don't, we don't want to be too off-putting. Um, you know, we're just, Jesus is he's pretty cool. Jesus, you know, Jesus is my bestie or whatever. I mean, pick your offensive term of casual behavior towards Jesus Christ. He says, you know what? I wish you were cold or hot. I'd rather you despised me than that you were indifferent. That's a really profound statement. God does not want your pathetic attempts at pretending to look like a Christian just so you can make yourselves feel better and get slack from the people around you. Looking like a Christian, looking like you are sort of into the things of God and not actually being, is disgusting in the sight of God. He says, if you don't change your behavior, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God is not about people who want to get their bases covered and get to heaven and then do whatever they want. God is not about people who say, you know what, I'm just going to kind of ride the wave. I'm going to ride, you know, my parents' Christianity or my spouse's Christianity or my friend's Christianity. It's just kind of, it's a nice club. The singing is kind of okay. Teaching's a little boring. You know what, it's not bad. It could be worse. Sure, I'll go to church. God says, that's, a, that's disgusting. Think about that for a second. And then Jesus says, well, he goes on, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He says, I'm only telling you this because I love you. And if you are doing something that disgusts the Lord, you need to know that it disgusts the Lord. And I can tell you that because as someone who teaches, I love you guys with the love of Christ, to tell you, if you are wasting your life, that's disgusting. It's pathetic. There's nothing worse than getting to the end of your life and realizing I had potential. I had a chance to walk with the Lord faithfully. I didn't use it. I had a chance to do something worthwhile with my life other than just pursue my own self-interest, and I didn't take it. And the Lord says, I rebuke you and chasten you because I love you. So if you're sitting here and you're like, wow, this is kind of not super fun, because the Lord is not interested in making the earth a comfortable place for people to go to hell from. The Lord is interested in people knowing him because this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus is outside this church. He is not a participant. He says, I'm actually knocking. I'm requesting permission to come into your church. And for some of us, he's requesting permission to come into our hearts. 
And he says, to him who overcomes, verse 21, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Do you realize if you're in a lukewarm state, all you have to do is stop being in a lukewarm state? Repent. If you're in a, if you're in a state of, of indifference to the Lord, you say, I'm, I'm already at the door. I'm knocking. Just open the stupid door and I'll come in. You don't have to do anything except quit saying, I don't actually want Jesus involved in my life. And, and he will come in to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. It's a great image. I mean, just like it's all the, all the thrill of a dad letting their kids sit on their lap. I mean, I have no idea what the throne of God is like. I'm sure it's incredible. He says, hey, you know what? You could be in lukewarm. You can sit on my lap, kids. Like, you can sit on the throne with me and say, like, wow, this is really cool, you know? And I'll be like, yeah, you have no idea, punk. But the, the Lord is offering an open invitation to anyone who is in a compromised, indifferent, lukewarm life. In verse 22, he says, he has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we wrap up the letters to the churches, okay? And it's, it is, you know, we said, historical churches, historical uh, letters. But it's not just that. It's not less than that. The Lord wants to use those to speak to our hearts. So what I want to do is I'm going to ask us all to just kind of be quiet for probably about five minutes, and I'll watch the time. But I want us to consider and ask the Lord, what is the state of my heart? Because, you know, churches can have different states, right? I mean, a church can be, have left its first love. A church can be just hanging on in persecution. A church can be corrupt. A church can be just being faithful and loving the Lord. A church can be lukewarm. A church can be dead. And so the human heart can do the same thing. And so what I want us to do is just kind of ask the Lord, what is the condition of my heart? And if the condition of your heart, as the Lord reveals it to you, is, hey, you're being faithful, just keep doing it, then just enjoy the time of quiet to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. But I want us to, to pause, because we can get so busy and so noisy in our lives, and we have so much chaos going on, that sometimes it's okay to just pause and let it be quiet for a little bit and say, all right, Lord, what do you want to say? And if he says, hey, you need to repent, then guess what you need to do? Repent. If he says, hey, guess what? I just love hanging out with you. You love hanging out with me. That's awesome. Then do that. But I'm going to just, I'll shut off the mic. And in about five minutes, I'll pray and we'll wrap up.
Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's real. Thank you that he's our God and our King, but also our friend. We pray that you would just help us, God, as we're starting this week, but working through the, the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights to, to see him more clearly. We want to have eyes that are open. We want the eyes of our hearts to be opened, God. So we thank you. We are so blessed and honored to get to know you, and we are so excited about his return. You told us to pray that he would hurry back. And so, Lord, we pray that Jesus would come back soon. We ask all these things in the name of Christ, our King. Amen.